He sold me a little coin envelope full of magnetic sand, and he had handwritten on it, magnetic sand. And uh, he said, now you take this and throw it behind the boy's foot. And if he steps backward into it, he will turn and ask you to go to the dance. And if he doesn't step back into it, there's nothing I can do. And I went, all right. So I I went to school. This was at um, Garfield Junior High, which is now Martin Luther King um, Middle School. And so I, I threw this behind his feet. And he stepped back into it. And he turned to me. And he said, are you going to go to the spring dance? And I said, I said, no, no one has invited me. And he goes, I'll invite you. And I thought, what the... Welcome to Mysterious World. Today, we listen to the amazing life stories of the one and only Catherine Ironwood. Seekers, Stuart Palm here. Welcome back to Mysterious World, if you've never been before, and welcome to Mysterious World, if this is your first time listening. This is a podcast exploring the mysteries that we find around us. Stories that describe experiences that might be unbelievable and People connected to such things in the world. Sometimes it's strange and wacky. Sometimes it's magical and mystical. And uh, that's the stuff that I'm into. So that's why we're here. And I um, recently learned a topic for a podcast that I quite like. It's true of comedy shows as well. And the topic concept that I would like to take on is, is the idea of being evergreen. And an evergreen creation is one that is not beholden to or necessitates the knowledge of the time it was created to be able to experience it. And um, that's hard right now. And, and we did a good job in the recording, and, and Catherine actually, Catherine directed that because I did open with a conversation about the goings-on of the world and COVID-19 and the fears that people are letting go of or, or experiencing deeply. And um, I can't, I thought about just going into this without addressing it, and, and I can't do that. Uh, but generally speaking, I, I am going to make a vow to, as much as possible, make these recordings and, and uh, conversations as accessible to any time. So I want anybody to be able to listen to this and understand and, and um, relate to it from the time they're in, no matter when that is in the future. Um, or the past, if possible. <laughs> so, um, I have made a... You're, you're going to see more of these. I've, I've, I'm doing a little work um, called the iLab with Anthony Jacqueline. 
an amazing coach and hypnotist. And um, in iLab, we're, it's a personal development sort of group. Um, we're going through a process where it starts with establishing three goals for the next three months. And one of my goals was to work on this podcast weekly and get it with a stronger following and uh, regular um, release. So, so I'm on to that. That is a goal that I'm taking on, and I know I've said things like that before, but and life gets entangled and things go out the door. But I am uh, committed to it, and and um, I love this podcast. I love the things that I've explored in the past, and and there's more than maybe only two. There's at least two people I've interviewed that have since passed on into the silence, and. Um, so it feels even more important to keep this going. Um, and if you, if you haven't listened to those two yet, uh, the, listen to the conversation when I was doing this at the beginning with Pablo Amira and I had on the amazing sword swallower, magician, and storyteller, Johnny Fox, um, who has since uh, passed on, and also the sort of pedagogue of a certain school of mentalism, which is a performance art of mind reading, Bob Cassidy. He, we did a we did a recording. I did a bit of a study with him. I had a weekly thing where we would get together, and uh, he'd guide me on my own work. Um, so check those out. Be thankful for the people the spirits that you have known, connected with, and learned from that have passed on. And actually, I'd like to start with that sort of mindset. We're going to send out some love. I'm going to send out some love. And in a moment, you'll have a period of silence. And in that silence encapsulated in the vibrations in this recording will be the love I'm sending out. Just a healing love of peace, letting go of anxiety and stress. And what I want you to do with that is to relax, to receive it. And as you receive it, Fragment it and send it out around you. Be the prism that takes the love and spreads it, builds it, expands it around. And as I focus inward, as I focus in on the love to send now, put your heart and your mind into a place of gratitude for all those who have sent love to you before and all those that you have enriched with your own love. And we take a moment now.
So mote it be. Blessed be to you and yours. Uh, a couple things you can check out right now uh, when you leave this at the end. Um, if you go to Third Sight Studio, search uh, thirdsightstudio.com or look on Facebook for Third Sight Studio, you'll find um, that I'm doing a meditation over Zoom. If you'd like to join my meditation practice over Zoom, it's called Mindlessness. And uh, that did start as a joke, but then I embraced it, and um, and it's going very well. Um, and, and you can explore all kinds of things. If you want to look at my performance side, go to at uh, Psychic Entertainer on the Instagram or Stuart Palm, Psychic Entertainer and Hypnotist on Facebook. I've been uh, re learning um, some video things and expanding my knowledge on programming and and the um, internet side of things uh, to put on regular performances and things over Zoom. And uh, that, that's been fun. I've been enjoying that creative act. I, I think it's a good time right now for us all to really focus on the creative things that we have not been making time for in our past and the things that will enrich and build on who we are. And um, so I challenge you to learn something new. Go find a master class or an Udemy workshop or something somewhere. Send me a message if you want, and uh, I'll, I'll help you learn something. I got things that I teach. But learn something new. Use this time. We've got more resources now and more access to resources now than ever before. So stay off the Netflix and the television and definitely stay off the news and put your heart and mind to expanding. And one place that you can learn some amazing new stuff is the Lucky Mojo Curio Company. And you'll hear a lot about that because my conversation today is with Catherine Ironwood owner and proprietor of the Lucky Mojo Curio Company, author of many, many books. And we start this conversation today where I ask her how she began to learn the art of hoodoo and conjure magic. of um, entry points, each of them different. And um, I would say that actually what really started was that I became interested in collecting folklore when I was about six. Uh, my grandfather, Theo Erlinger, was a lawyer, but his hobby was folklore, particularly German Christian folklore. He was um, a German Jew, and he was interested in Bavarian folklore. And he had a large collection of um, folk art and um, such, and he was a wealthy man. Um, he even maintained a Christmas tree for the family's five Christian servants, and he was interested in all of their customs and very just a, a, a neat guy. He came after the war. Uh, he was in America, and so was my mother had escaped to America, and 
he came to visit us and um, I, he asked me what I had done at school and I said, oh, the, the little kids were playing jump rope and I was learning how to play jump rope. And he just asked me straight up, he said, do the little black kids do different jump rope rhymes than the little white kids? And I said, I don't know. And he said, if I give you a little notebook and a pencil, and it was one of those little flip over steno pads, uh -huh. if I give you a little notebook and a pencil, write down and tell me what the little white kids say when they jump rope and what the little black kids say when they jump rope. And if you bring it back to me written down, I'll give you a square of lint chocolate from Switzerland. <laughs> so I, I listened and I wrote them down and they were different songs. And I also, for bonus points, told him that the white children jumped with a single rope and the black children jumped double dutch. With double two dutch. And um, so he gave me a square of chocolate and then I said to him, but you didn't ask me about the little Chinese children because there were a lot of Cantonese Chinese in our neighborhood uh -huh. um, in the East Bay. And he said, oh, do the little Chinese children play jump rope? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> Go back and find out. And I found out that they did what was called Chinese jump rope, where they would make a circle and jump the circle. And... Um, so I got real interested in this, and he rewarded me with chocolate, and eventually he went back to where he, he lived, which was New York. And um, unbeknownst to me, um, one of my mother's best friends, Patricia Evans, my mother was going to library school then at Cal. Um, this woman was getting her PhD in, in children's folklore. And I didn't, I don't see very well, I'm visually impaired, I can't get a driver's license. But um, I was in the first grade, and the teacher said, all the kids who have good grades can go out, and during recess, go over there, and there's a woman, and she will collect stories from you. So I went there, stood in line, and when my turn came, I actually didn't recognize that it was Patricia Evans at first. I just thought, oh, it's a nice white lady, and she's sitting on a chair underneath the big acacia tree. And she said do you know any patty cakes? And I said, oh, yes, I know a lot of them. And I began to tell her, and finally she she knew who I was. She kind of shut me up. And she said, you know a lot of them. Why don't you stay here and help me? And I didn't realize she was my mother's friend. And so I thought, wow, I'm so privileged. I get to stand. So she sent back a note to the teacher saying, you know, little Kathy will stay and help me. So for three days, I didn't go to any classes. And I was her um, assistant asking about jump rope rhymes, patty cakes, how to play potsy, all the different rules that I knew, and, and drawing out these children. And she taught me how to be an anthropologist, which is what she was studying. And um, then her book came out, and I went, oh, my God. <laughs> and then I realized it was my mother's friend, Patricia Evans. Her husband had a bookstore. My parents had a bookstore. But at the time, it was like just this strange woman. And I was always embarrassed after every time I'd see her, I'd think, she probably thought I knew who she was, but I hadn't actually recognized her. So I became convinced that I was going to be you know, an anthropologist and a, maybe a biologist or both. And so I began asking all my friends for their different folkloric tricks, the little white kids, the little black kids. I was in a part of town that was racially diverse. And um, where, where, you know, were, you, where were you kids, living at this point? This was in Berkeley. Okay. In, in a part of Berkeley called the Berkeley Flats, which is down on the um, the flat part of town. Where it goes up the hills, it was mostly white, but the Berkeley Flats was a racially integrated area. And so there were a lot of um, 
grad students who couldn't afford to live up in the hills or Jewish refugees like my mother who had no money. And uh, there were black and Chinese people and some Greek also. Um, it's where Johnny Otis also grew up, the rock and roll nice. singer and, and band leader. So, although he was older than me. But so um, I just began kind of asking people about these and writing them down in the notebook. And when that notebook was filled, I just kept on going. And I wrote down songs and I just, I was a collector. I didn't know that adults did this really for a living until my mother showed me the um, the books by the Krobers, who she knew because she was a librarian at the university. And I began to find, go hang out at the Lowy Museum of Anthropology and so forth. And I really became interested in Native American and, um, of course, Jewish, which is what I am ostensibly, and mm -hmm. also um, Catholic and Christian, because my mother had inherited from her father this interest in uh, Catholic iconography. Mm -hmm. And when she had tried to escape Hitler the first time, she'd gone to Italy to try to hide out, mm -hmm. and she was studying art history there, Renaissance art history. So she taught me about, a lot about that. And one thing led to another. We went to Europe. We hung out for a year. I didn't go to school. I studied folklore and, and other things, but I just really had a lot of fun. And then when I came back, I was... Um, very interested in music, and I was interested in white string bands and country and western old, like from the 20s. Mm -hmm. And also I was interested in black blues music, ragtime and string band, black string band music also from the 1920s. And I was collecting 78 RPM records, and I also was interested in how that had kind of mutated into rock and roll from jump blues. And so I had a big collection of records, a huge collection of records. There was a, a radio station that did um, name it and claim it, and I was gifted in such a way that I could hear three notes of any song, and I'd know what recording of that song that was, and I would win them. You'd dial in and I'd win. And I, I ended up befriending the DJ who was at the time known as Casey at the mic, but he went on to be Casey Kasem. Nice. And I I en ended up with hundreds of records. He let me win all the time. And so I heard a record played, and we had three stations um, in our area. That one was a white country, one was um, it was KSAY, one was uh, all black KDIA Lucky Thirteen, and KDIA Lucky Thirteen only played black music and a lot of it from Louisiana because people from Louisiana had moved up to the East Bay to work during the war in the shipyards, hmm. and um, and also from Mississippi. And that's where most of my friends' parents were from. And the third station, KEWB, um, which was a sister station to KFWB in L.A., they played a mix of black and white. And I would always just tune, you know, I had those punch-button transistor radio, and I would always just punch between one and the other. And um, there was a song came on, this was in 61, and it was called Raining in My Heart by Slim Harpo. And... Um, I really loved Raining in My Heart by Slim Harpo. It was great, and I wanted to have a copy of it. So I went down to the local uh, record store in Berkeley at Palmer's Drugstore, and I walked in and I said, the DJ had said it was on the Excello label out of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I went and I said, do you have Raining My Heart by Slim Harpo on the Excello label out of Baton Rouge, Louisiana? And the woman looked at me very kindly, and she said, no, we don't carry that kind of record here you have to go to Oakland to get that record, which was the next big city south. Right. 
And I said, oh, she goes, here's what you do. You get on the number 33 bus and you're going to go down. She told me where to get off on Broadway to get off at such and such a stop and turn left. And there would be another record store where they would have that record. She promised me. And I, I got on the bus. I went down there and it was the black part of town. And I walked in, I bought the record. And then I realized that um, the bus ride hadn't been really that long and I could walk home. I walked a lot in those days. Mm -hmm. So I started walking home. And as I walked home, I went by a store, and on the window, in white reverse-painted lettering, it said candles, and then a little printer's flower, you know, one of those little leaf with a twisted vine? Yep. And then underneath that, it said spiritual supplies. And being Jewish, I thought a store that said candles, spiritual supplies would be a Judaica shop. But I went in, and um, of course, I'm. it was... Uh, I have a hard time seeing, so it took me a second. I realized everyone in the shop was black, which was not a problem to me. I mean, I, I was my parents were part of the civil rights movement. My mo mother was a socialist. My father was a communist, and hmm. we had a lot of black friends. And in fact, my father had been lovers with a black man before he married my mother, and I had black cousins, but I'm not descended from that part of the family. They were Sicilians who married African-Americans back east in Staten Island and stuff, in Queens. Mm -hmm. So, I, I, you know, I was not shocked that I was in a black store, but I was surprised because I didn't know black people used candles as a spiritual supply. I only knew that Jews did. And so I, I said to the man, because I was always taught to be polite, I said, is it all right if I shop here? And he pointed to a sign on the wall and it said, quote, the little shop where all are welcome, unquote. Nice. And I, and I thought, okay, then it's okay if I shop. So I shopped and I found a bottle of the shape of bottle that's now called a vanilla bottle. It's sort of flat with faceted shoulders, but it was the large size, um, yep. not the little one. And um, and it was um, Essence of Bend Over Floor Wash by Valmore out of Chicago. And I said, I thought it was a funny name, and it showed a woman bending down to a Buddha, a, a woman in a bikini bending down to a Buddha. It was very cross-cultural and, and, and kind of wacky-looking label, but the sure. art was pretty. And I said, can I buy this? Because I didn't want to you know, be rude or anything. I said, can I buy this? And he said, no, you can't. And I said, why not? And he said, uh, you're a young girl. You don't wash nobody's floors. And I immediately realized what he was talking about because when you took the 64 bus home, uh, which I did, I rode buses sometimes just because I was lonely, um, bored, and uh, didn't like to talk to people much. Mm -hmm. And um, and I, my parents weren't at home after school. They were both working in the bookstore and working in the library. So I just, you know, I just would ride buses all day long. It was kind of weird. I was an odd child. So I knew on the 64 bus, it would take you way up the hill to where all the white people lived. And they had black servants and domestics. And it, I knew it was always time to go home when I'd be riding the 64 and transferring. I had this whole routine for transferring without paying. And when all the black women got on in their white uniforms and then took their caps off and, and would ride down the hill, then I knew I had to get off because it was time to go home because my mother would be back soon. So I knew what he meant when he said, you don't wash nobody's floors. Right. And I just, this sort of this light bulb went on and I realized immediately what essence of bend over floor wash. It was for, uh, to make your um, employer treat you better when you wash the floor they would be affected by it and um i was very surprised uh, that such a thing existed in a commercial product i knew a lot about uh, black 
folklore and hoodoo already from some of my friends in school. They were very simple, childlike things, chewing gum spells, sugar spells, you know, things like that. Sure. But I had never seen a commercial product. And so I said to him, well, if I can't buy this, what can I buy? And he said, you're a young girl. You want a boy to ask you to a dance. And I said, wait. You know, yes, I do. And I really wondered at the time, how did he know that? How could he have guessed <laughs> that I wanted a boy to take me to the dance? And there was a boy I had a crush on. He was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, um, sort of Scottishy, English, handsome young boy. Um, his name was Jamie Morrison, and he was the most popular boy in school. And um, and he had a girlfriend named Betsy Mueller, and who was also of Germanic extraction, and um, but I thought he was so handsome, and he wasn't very good at school, and he was going to be put down into the B level, and so I did all his homework for him, and I followed him around like a puppy dog, and I, I thought if I did his homework, he wouldn't be, he'd be in the same classes that I was, and whatever, I just had a crush on him. And so so the man said to me, you, you want some magnetic sand, so he sold me a little coin envelope full of magnetic sand, and he had handwritten on it, magnetic sand. And uh, he said, now you take this and throw it behind the boy's foot. And if he steps backward into it, uh, he will turn and ask you to go to the dance. And if he doesn't step back into it, there's nothing I can do. And I went, all right. So I, <laughs> I went to school. This was at um, Garfield Junior High, which is now Martin Luther King um, Middle School. Um, and which is was a very pretty school, lovely place to be. And so I, I threw this behind his feet and he stepped back into it and he turned to me and he said, "Is any, are you gonna go to the spring dance? <laughs> and I said, I said, no, no one has invited me. And he goes, I'll invite you. And I thought, what the fuck? <laughs> Jamie Morrison just invited me to the, to the spring dance. I couldn't believe it. He goes, but, he says, but, I need six posters made for the dance to hang in the halls. Can you make those posters? <laughs> if you can, I'll take you. So I stayed up all night and hand-painted with tempera paint six beautiful posters. I made some of them with tissue paper collage and paint and lettered them, and they were huge, and I did them on butcher paper, and I gave them to him, and he, they were all hung up in the halls like banners. And he did show up to take me to the dance, and he had a corsage with a Catalea orchid that he gave to me. And um, he took me to the dance, and he danced one dance with me. And then he said, well, you know I'm going steady with Betsy Mueller, so is it okay with you if I da dance the rest of the dances with her? Huh. And I said, yeah, it's okay. So I s just sat the whole there. Nobody danced with me for the whole rest of the dance. And at the end of the dance... He came up to me and he said, well, I'd like to go home with Betsy Mueller. Do you think you can get home on your own? Oh. And I only lived about a mile away. I knew it was not a bad walk, you know. I said, sure, I can walk home. And so he left with Betsy Mueller. And that's when I realized that hoodoo works and that I had asked the wrong question. Right. <laughs> because my prayer should have been that Jamie Morrison love me. Right. And... That's when I decided to study this completely. So I went back to the store many times, and I hung out. And there were older ladies there. These were the grandmothers of my school friends. And um, 
they they kind of adopted me as kind of a curiosity, and I would bring my little notebook. By then, I had at eight and a half by eleven college ruled notebooks, and I would write everything down, and I'd say, "How do you use this?" And one of them would tell me, and then the other would say, "No, no, I can tell you how you would do it in." in Monroe, Monroe, Louisiana. And the other one would say, no, this is how we do it in Lake Charles or whatever. And they would tell me these different ways to use these products. And so I was really thought I was the only person collecting this information till my mother showed me Zora Neale Hurston's Mules and Men. Right. And New, and New Bell Niles Puckett's Folk Beliefs of the Southern Negro. And I thought, wow, I'm going to be like these guys. You know, I'm going to do that kind of thing. I went away to college. I was an early entrant. And I went to college... Um, in a little town called Mount Carroll, Illinois. It was a liberal arts college called Shimer. And um, to my surprise, there was marijuana growing all around the college um, because it had been grown for um, fiber during World War One. And um, I knew about marijuana because my parents both used and smoked it and, and whatever. And I knew that my father always got the marijuana came from the black part of Oakland. He, I didn't know who he bought from, but I knew where it came from. And um, so I brought a whole bunch of this marijuana, cut it, brought it home to the dorm, cut it up, dried it, and um, and I uh, packed it up in suitcases, and I took the Burlington Northern into Chicago, got in a bus, and I said to the bus driver, um, what, where's the black part of town? Because I didn't know. And he said, south side. And I said, will you go in any of that direction? He goes, no, you got to cross the street and transfer. So I transferred and got on. That driver was black. And I said, uh, can you let me off in the black part of town? And he didn't even think twice. He goes, sure. He lets me off on a street corner. I saw a young man about my age, a little older than me, standing in the corner. And I knew standing in the corner and he was going to deal, you know. And I went over and I said, um, I said I've got three suitcases full of um, really bad weed that you can use to cut some really good weed like Acapulco gold and you can make some money. <laughs> you think we can make a deal? And he said, follow me. I'm going to take you to my uncle. So he, I followed him. He took me to his uncle. I opened it up. We smoked it. And the guy says, this stuff is shit, but it smells good. And I said, that's right. And, and I said, so for three suitcases, how much will you give me of Acapulco gold? And he said, I'll give you one flake, which is a flake off of a baled kilo from Mexico. Hmm. And I took the flake and I took it back to Shimer College. I began to um, sell it to all the, the, the young, <laughs> I call it, you know, these ignorant other college students who knew, didn't know what I was doing. Right. And um, so I was selling, I was cutting it down, of course, with the with the wild ditch weed. And I had a roommate and she got into it. She really liked this. She goes, you're so, he, she idolized me and she, oh, you're so great. You know, I said, well, I'll take you into Chicago next time I go. So I went in Chicago with her. Her name was Linda. And I wanted to show off to her. I was just enough of a show off that I, I said, well, let's go down on Maxwell Street because that's where I was doing a lot of my selling at that point. I said, let's go on down on Maxwell Street. And I said, I, I'm going to show you around. And um, there were blues musicians played down there in the street and they had little pig nose amps plugged into the tailor shops and things. And and um, and there was a, a little conjure shop, candle shop, uh, incense shop, whatever you want to call it, herb shop. Mm -hmm. And I, I walked in and I wanted to show her that I knew so much. I was kind of trying to show off for her. I said, I'll bet you they have John the Conquer root here. And she goes, what's that? And I said, just wait, I'm going to go up to the, follow me. She, I go up to the counter. I said, do you have John the Conquer root? And she said, yes. She pulls out a bowl of it, just like we had in Oakland. And I said, that's interesting. And then I saw the label of all the Valmore products, which I knew had been made in Chicago, but it was like this lightning bolt, pazoom, bang. Nice. And I went, 
oh my God, this isn't something just from Oakland or just from Chicago. This exists all over the world, wherever black people are. This is African retention material that has been made into a commercial good after emancipation. It's like the whole thing just went, boom, I saw the whole thing. And I thought, oh my God, I've got to quit college now, which I did uh, by May. I didn't even finish out a year. And so I never got my high school diploma either um, because they held it ransom, you know, while you went to college because if you were an early entrant. So I just took off and just started hitchhiking around all over, asking for candle shops and conjure shops. I went to Atlanta, went to Jackson, Mississippi. I went everywhere. And I began to just, I, I confirmed to myself that this existed wherever black people existed, that it had a uniformity about it, but it also, there were regional variations. And I was going to write a book on it. I was, that was going to be my job. I was going to write this big book. And just around that time in the 70s, Reverend Harry Hyatt, who had been collecting all this material privately since the 30s, hmm. his wife died, leaving him a lot of money, and he published um, his compilation, his five volumes. They didn't all come out at once, but um, the first two volumes came out, um, uh, Hoodoo, Conjure, Witchcraft, Root Work. And I was so blown away. He'd way, of course, he was a professional grown-up when he had done it. I was a child when I started collecting. He had recording um instruments he made field recordings and I thought I guess I just I don't have to do this um, and I kind of put it on the back burner I kept on I had a company called the funky company I made oils and incenses and uh, am, uh, amulets and I made I dipped candles and made fixed candles and I had this whole company the funky company and um, and then I had another uh, I lived on a commune I had a a Durga Shiva augury company. I did astrology and stuff, but I I um, got into comic books as a as a job, and um, when that fell apart because of my marriage with this the guy who owned the comic book company broke up, I went back to Lucky Mojo because Valmore had uh, gone out of business when the owner Morton Newman had died, and I there was a bigger company had sort of taken over called Indio Products, and they were putting out products that were like real awful, filled with poisonous chemicals like uh, diethyl phthalate. And I also saw that there was a very great economic disparity between black people and white people in terms of the ownership of computers because they were so expensive at the time. This was in the very early 90s. And I, I had this feeling that I could do a service by putting this material online to preserve it until the time when computers would be cheap enough that black people would own them. I didn't recognize that cell phones were going to replace computers mm. for most people. And um, so I started in 1994 to just put everything I knew. But it wasn't only about hoodoo. I also had a whole section on Jewish folk magic, Latino folk magic, Asian, whatever I wanted to do. And I had the Lucky Mojo Company to support me and um, making up the same formulas that I had made in the Funky Company. And over the years, I had gotten a lot of these formulas from older chemists who had worked for companies like the Lucky Heart and, and um, uh, a Clover Horn Company in Baltimore. Mm. A lot of those guys, when they retired, they gave me formulas. Also, I'm a good perfumer, and I can crack a formula by smelling it. Oh, that's nice. So... Um, that is how it happened. That's a long story. That's a great story. 
<laughs> I don't. I'll never have to tell it again because I can now point people to this and say, oh, "There it is. It's in one place." So it, it started when you were about six, but in jump ropes was the end. That's great. It started with jump ropes when I was six, but it really became an interest in hoodoo when I went into that shop. That was the moment when I saw that because up to that point I was collecting like, you know, everything wart remedies, how to talk a burn out of someone's skin, you know, lucky bean recipes for the new year. I, I was just doing general folklore and I was sorting it according to the regionality, ethnicity, and cultural background of the person who gave it to me. But it wasn't until I went into that store and and then when I went, you know, a few years later, I guess it was in 64, mm -hmm. that I went into the store in Chicago. And that's when I went, oh my God, I've got to stop everything and just only collect hoodoo sure. and uh, learn it. And I didn't think of myself to be teaching it um, because I really didn't feel that was my place, but I had a lot of black customers and they would ask me questions and I have a very retentive memory. Mm -hmm. And I would say, well, I can tell you three ways to do this. This is the way I learned in Columbus, Georgia. This is the way I learned in New York City, you know, and I'd just give them different spells. And uh, enough of my black clients and friends said, can you teach this, that I finally decided to teach it. But I never wanted to be a cultural appropriator or to say I know more than anybody. Sure. Um, and I, I mean, my, my role was simply to hold on to this material until someone who was black came and said, oh, I needed that. And I said, here you go. Right. But along the way, as time went on, more and more white people became interested in it. And I guess because I'm a good writer and I had written by that point about 10,000 web pages. And so um, more and more white people became interested. And I don't mind teaching white people. Obviously, black people taught me, so there shouldn't be anything wrong with teaching white people. But I often have to teach my white people the first job is to realize that this is black folk culture and, um, and respect that. Right. And maybe, maybe if I had it to do over again... Um, I don't know. I, I there, There's no way to please everybody, I guess. Maybe if I had it to do over again, I wouldn't have taught the course that I teach. But on the other hand, I've taught it. 2,160 people have taken the course. So obviously it's something that people like. And um, Why would you not teach it? Because I've gotten a lot of haters on online for being a Jewish woman teaching black folk culture. Oh, well, ignore those people. <laughs> well, you know, it's hard when you are already socially maladjusted and socially non-adept. You know, you just sort of want to go away when people say mean things. And some of the mean things that have been said have been really mean. It doesn't make me cry or anything. It doesn't make me depressed. It just makes me go, maybe I'm in the wrong place. Maybe I should just stop. But on the other hand, I have enough people who who enjoy it who are black. I'm really only doing it for my black students. I have to say that for, for real. Because what I learned, and one reason I did this was in the 70s, I was interested in um, Celtic folklore. Um, I'm not Celtic in the least. I have no Celtic, uh, not a drop of Celtic in me. But those girls who were dyeing their hair red and, you know, following Stevie Nicks around. I don't, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
there was a big fad for that. And they were also pretty and they had this fair skin. I'm, I'm light skinned, but I don't have that fair pink cheeks that they had and the little pointy chins. And they were so pretty and they, they hennaed their hair and they talked about going to Ireland. And I thought, wow, I wish I could do that. So I studied that. But what I realized very soon was that it was a broken tradition and they hadn't even bothered to read the old Manchester Guardian newspaper articles on the folklore of Western England and, and Eastern Ireland. They had no idea what they were doing. They were making it up as they went along. Mm-hmm. And it got all mixed up with weird things, goddess worship and all Margaret Murray and all of this stuff. And it's easy enough to laugh at them in retrospect. But what I realized their problem was it was a broken tradition. Mm-hmm. And what I realized that was so strong about hoodoo was it was not a broken tradition, but it was fraying. And I knew it was fraying because I had a, I sang in a church. Um, well, it was Johnny Otis's church, actually. And, um, and, and I sang in the choir. And there were um, a couple of white people in the church of whom I was one. And, um, and I um, had a friend there who was, in, we would go to rehearsals together. And one day she said to me, um, do you have a John the Conquer route? And I said, Sure, I have them. Yeah, I, I have them. And she said, you know, um, I, I I look back on all of that. You know, in my family, people used to carry those. And I said, yeah, you want one? She goes, I don't know. She goes, it, it, my mother told me to not listen to what my grandfather and grandmother said. And I said, well, what would they say? And she goes, well, you know, I don't know. My grandfather used to read bones. He would draw a circle in the dirt and then kneel down and squat down and read bones for people, possum bones. And she goes, do you know what he was doing? I said, well, kind of, yeah, I know what he was doing, but I can't say exactly. I said, where was he from? She said, Tennessee. I said, well, that's not an area I know that much, but I know about reading possum bones. And um, she said, you know, my mother said to me, you're going to be the first one in our family who goes to college. Don't look back. And that's when I, I thought her daughter, who was in her teens, wasn't going to get that information. It had to come from somewhere. So I used to call myself the, you know, the patient waiter. I just, I got the material. I sat there and I held it and said, here it is for you. If and when you want to come back, I'm holding on to it because I don't have to go to college. I'm a fucking weirdo dropout hippie. It's okay. You go to college. I'll hold all this hoodoo. You come get it later. So that's when I decided to do that. I think it's great that you recognized at such a young age that your calling was to some degree to record history and to record spells and record magic and to, to do it on a multicultural level, uh, which is you know important because otherwise this has been an orally passed down mostly thing, I yes. assume. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I didn't do anything half compared to what uh, Harry Middleton Hyatt did. But see, he started when he was an adult. Actually, he started when he was a young adult in Quincy, Illinois. And he was a member of the uh, American Folklore Society. And he, he began collecting and, and he then became interested um, in going into the South and collecting black folklore. And he, he interviewed 1,600 people. I can't say I did that. So he was an adult. I mean, he was in his 40s when he was doing that. So I was, when I was started, six years old, 14 years old, you know, 16 years old, I had a, I had a, the best conception I could at the time. But he's the one who really preserved the most. Um, 
and I have to give him all credit for that. I consult his books still. Uh, his stuff is great, and the people that he um, recorded are a fantastic resource. They were generous, and they gave all of their 1,600 different root workers and practitioners that he interviewed. You can't beat that over the course of um, four intense years, and then he did it off and on for another, uh, oh my gosh, um, 30 years after that, before he published. Did you ever connect so, with him? No, no, I did not. He died um, very early on in the, he never finished, the, the sixth book never came out. He did, he reprinted his book from 1935, and then he did five volumes of Hoodoo Conjure Witchcraft Root Work, and the sixth volume was supposed to be an index, and he died before he did the index. So, wow. No, I didn't. I, at the time, I was living in the Ozarks. I now we're just going to take a little break so I can uh, plug some things for Kat and for myself uh, and, and also just reflect on some of the things that she's talking about. I, I, I love the I love that she's a person you can just say go and she'll <laughs> tell you long, beautiful stories. Um, I love the idea of looking at our own histories and our own traditions, our own cultures and finding where the magical practices we might not notice exist, such as we, we talk about uh, blowing out the candles on a birthday cake. Uh, when I was a kid, every uh, New Year's, and I, I still do this now, we put a penny in a pot of black-eyed peas, and whomever gets the penny gets their wish for the year. Um, and this is actually a black... Uh, African-American tradition as well. Um, and when I've shared that with, with some black friends that I have, they, they, they are confused and wonder why it is. Um, but it, it's become a Southern tradition. So these things cross over from one culture to another. There's a similar tradition in, um, at least in Southern France, I know because I spent some time there, where there is a cake and there's a crown that's baked in the cake, and that person gets luck. Um, so what I'm uh, calling on you to do is to look at your own family history and the culture that you grew up with and search and reflect on the magical practices that you have and that your family has that you might not even recognize or see as magical practices. Sometimes we just see these things shoot away as superstitions, but there is a deep history there, and there is um, an interesting, amazingly deep breadth of knowledge that can be gained by looking into it. Take a moment and leave a comment at mysteriousworldpodcast.com, or you can go to stuartpalm.com slash podcast and let me know what you find what are the traditional magical practices that are part of your family's traditions also if you want to learn more about what hoodoo is or if you practice and you need to find supplies or if you're inspired as i know many of you are and want to read some of the many, many amazing books. I have a bunch of them right here. Such as 
Throwing the bones. How to foretell the future with bones, shells, and nuts. Paper in my shoe. Name papers, petition papers, and prayer papers in the hoodoo rootwork tradition. Or the art of hoodoo candle magic. There's a lot of great books by Catherine. If you go to Lucky Mojo Curio Company, uh, just search Lucky Mojo or go to luckymojo.com and you'll find all of this stuff. A deep well of uh, magical knowledge. And lots of wonderful um, powders, oils, and magical products that you really can't find many other places. If you are new to these kinds of things and this world of thinking that we are talking about and that I generally am talking about often, uh, and you want to begin, um, I have a great way that you can sort of dip your mind into the unconscious and magical worlds through a book that I wrote called Access Your Psychic Self Beginner Pendulum Magic. You can buy at lulu.com. Just go to stuartpalm.com and you'll find a link there. Uh, you could also buy it on Amazon, but I, I always try to direct people otherwise because I end up receiving a very small fraction of... Um, that price when you order it from Amazon. They really have uh, too much power, those guys. So um, I hope that you expand the knowledge. I hope you check out more of Catherine's things. Uh, there is a lot more to go, and this is only part one uh, of my conversation with the incomparable Catherine Ironwood. I had gone to the Ozarks to collect... Um Ozarks folklore and song. I'd been inspired by an, uh, a folklorist named Vance Randolph and um, who wrote a lot of good books on the Ozarks. And I had wanted to buy land that was cheap. I couldn't live in California and buy land. I could only rent. And um, so me and my partner, Peter, we, we went around and we decided we wanted to live someplace way out in the country in a place that had lost population since the 1900 census because we knew the land would be cheap and there would be abandoned farms and so we moved to south central missouri so i began collecting ozarks folklore there hmm. um and um you know you, you just do what you do i mean i was i've been interested in in all of this i had a whole another notebook just full of um cantonese chinese folklore from my cantonese chinese school friends nice you know, um, the military god. I remember all that of the military god. Oh, yeah, he's a big deal. I go to big his Big deal temple. for Cantonese. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was often. a... Yeah, there's a military god temple in the town of Mendocino, hmm. where my mother moved to uh, when she broke up with my stepfather. And um, she kind of retired from the university, but she needed a little part-time money, and they needed a part-time uh, school librarian. And there was this, this little... Um, temple up there but built in the 1850s and she became involved in making it getting it a national historic landmark status she worked with the kids they're about my age actually mm. the the grandchildren and um and it's still there they they restored it and everything and it's just beautiful now they have whole cultural you know lion and dragon parades and all that stuff in the town of mendocino people come up from san francisco to do it to show that this was a big outpost of chinese culture during the gold rush and shortly thereafter 
Cool. But so yeah, that 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 was always part of my family's history too, going around the gold rush and researching Cantonese, Chinese um, folk magic. Strangely enough, my daughter married a man who is um, half Polish Jewish and half Cantonese Chinese. And that family, the Liu family, came over uh, in the gold rush. So, yeah. So, yeah, that was my, I was always, a, I, I guess, a, a bit of an outsider, a cultural, um, a, 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 I just love culture. I, I love it all. Food, song, dance, colors, music, beliefs. It's always this big, beautiful package. I just, I love it, you know. I, I I respond to a lot of what you're saying because it seems the things that you respond to and and fall in love with and have taken uh, it upon yourself to record and be involved with are things that culture of that time would have hidden things that you that yeah. you would say oh well we don't talk about that you know magic or or sexuality or even comic books mm -hmm. probably at that time right. uh, but where we have started to allow ourselves out of all those closets it seems to, yeah. to you know and that that is the train the world is on i i believe which is a good thing so it's important that you've you've recorded that stuff and and have it um for people to find um yeah. when, when you joined lucky mojo who started lucky mojo what's the backstory oh of i did I, okay uh, i started it yeah, yeah. that's what i, I, that's what I thought when, when you told mm -hmm. it i was like oh it sounded like you joined it no, no, no. When I started, no, I had originally I had the funky company with my then um, husband, Tom Hall. And then um, I had the Durga Shiva Augury Company and the Garden of Joy Blues, which did quilting and handicrafts. But Durga Shiva did all of the magical stuff. And then I um, married a guy named Dean Mullaney. And he was from uh, Staten Island. He was actually Jewish, despite having the name Mullaney. His father had been adopted by the Mullaney family. But... Um, he and I didn't get along very well, but we had a productive marriage. He had a company called Eclipse Comics, and I was the editor-in-chief. And he was afraid that I was too weird, that um, we wouldn't be able to make, an, make inroads into the regular business world. So he told me to put a lid on it, except for astrology, which he didn't believe in. And he said it was okay if I could talk about astrology. But I didn't make any products during those Mm, six, eight years I was mm. with him. I, that was the only time I stopped making products. And then when he left, I was working as a staff editor for Organic Gardening Magazine, and I was sent on a um, um, a journey to ghost write a book for a famous man who had his first book, had been a big, big bestseller. I, I don't want to get into it because you'll know who he was, but I, he was a guy whose first book had been a bestseller, and it was about um, sustainable agriculture and whatever. Mm. And I didn't know it had been ghostwritten. I liked the book. And then he hired me to ghostwrite the second book. And then I found the ghostwriter of his first book. And I thought, what? this is weird. But I got $40,000 for ghostwriting the book. And I got sent around the world to interview people. And um, I went to Australia and Japan. And, and uh, it was just really great. And I, of course, did my regular research into Australian folk culture, too, while I was there. And then um, that man was um, found to have embezzled a whole lot of money, and the book was um, canceled. And he had been given a hundred thousand. I'd gotten a forty thousand cut off of it. Hmm. And I called up the publisher and I said, "Do I have to give the money back?" And they said, "No." So I used that money to found. Uh, I didn't need it all. I paid off a lot of my mortgage, and I also um, founded Lucky Mojo. Nice. Yeah. 
Well done. Um, yeah, it was a good deal. It's interesting. The book never came out. No. Yeah. It's interesting when you when you were talking about the Celtic side of things, and I and I think that the the problem with magic for white people <laughs> uh, and that lack of cultural knowledge is just that it's killed off uh, mm-hmm. th- through um, you know Catholic and Christian belief systems and 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 subverted uh, because you know my my coming to this. And coming to magic has been just, I mean, through books for a long time and also um, other cultures. It's very hard to find it living within any white culture um, unless you go to those places. Well, what is your ethnic background? Uh, German and Scottish and and So, and, and by German... By German, you mean German German, not German Jewish, just German German. Yeah, German Alsatian actually. Alsatian. As far as, ah, as, far as nice. I know. Nice. Yeah. My well, yeah, but, that's but a, on that's both a sides, much... both sides of my family uh, can be traced in the U.S. to the 1700s. So uh, mm. it, there's a lot of culture lot from from Europe lost there. In that sense, mm-hmm. the oh, thing yeah. that's been held on to the most is Scottish traditions. I was going to say the Scots have had a hard time giving it up, and the Irish also, to a certain extent, have held sure. on to it. It it has a lot to do with socioeconomic class and with segregation. Mm-hmm. I think one reason hoodoo was not a broken tradition was it is an actually, it, it sounds strange to say it, but it was a beneficial byproduct of the horrors of racial segregation. I'm the same with Jewish folk magic. Uh, racial segregation kept Jewish folk magic for Jews. And anytime there is a, a minority group that is segregated, they tend to not disperse, they tend to not marry out, they tend to not lose their cultural beliefs because nobody wants to know about it from the big culture, so they don't talk about it, but they have it. And the more they assimilate or the less they are segregated against the more uh, diffuse and the more they pick up TV culture or mass culture. Um, and I have seen that in every group that I've been around. Um, the, the Pennsylvania Dutch, for instance, because they are self-segregating, uh, they have retained German culture more than the average German-American type. And um, the... The Scottish were always, you know, fighting for their independence against England in their minds and, and sometimes on the ground. So they've kind of self-segregated also. They don't give up being Scottish. Um, but there are cultures, especially in uh, Northern Europe, where the Reformation had a huge impact. Um, and then after the Reformation, uh, there became a, a sort of a you know, scientific skepticism sort of took over among the intellectual classes. And so they don't, I mean, I've talked to people from Northern Europe who've said, oh, we don't have any folk magic in our family. And it's been my amused pleasure to say to them, what about this or that? And I will name something. And they'll go, how did you know my grandmother does that? And I'm like, yeah. And, and then I said, go back and talk to your grandmother. And all of a sudden, it turns out they do have folk magic in their family. Nobody asked the grandmother, you know. Right. So uh, there's a lot yeah, of reclaiming. I mean, if they, if they blow out the on. candles for happy birthday, they've got something. Right, 
Right. And that is a particular, that's one of those, um, yeah, that's a real good one. And there's others, like in the Ozarks, people would say, if you want to know your husband-to-be, you peel an apple in one peeling, you know, like one long peeling, and then you go out to a snowbank. Of course, it was supposed to be have snow on the ground in, at, at um, New Year's, rather, I should say. And you go out at New Year's and you throw the, the apple peeling over your left shoulder at New Year's into a snowbank, and um, it'll form the letter of your husband-to-be's initials. Sure. So those things still exist and and can be found. Uh, one of the things in my course that I teach is the first uh, homework you have to do is the homework of your own family. Oh, that's good. And uh, and whatever your family is. And then the other one is the homework of another racial, cultural, ethnic group. And since the course is about hoodoo, if you're not black, then the second one would have to be with a black friend. And if you are black, you're what I call free of the floor. You can just interview anybody. And, um, and I, I get a lot of interesting overlaps because there are a lot of black families that contain Scottish and English and Irish folklore. Sure. And also Native American folklore and even some Jewish folklore. And, um, and there also are groups in the black community that are quite anti spirituality anti-magic in that sense um church of god in christ for one some of the pentecostal and holiness groups uh, don't like magic just the way some of the more abstemious um white christian groups and jewish groups don't like it muslim groups as well they consider it sorcery and it's bad but um there are families in which these retentions can be traced very clearly back to Africa or to Native American beliefs or both. And um, well, there's a lot of, looking, of sharing. Looking yeah. back at Christianity, and and, and I, I grew up uh, with Methodist grandparents, so that's, that was my entrance to that part. Um, but it's funny how, how they demonize magical practice and witchcraft. And if you look at a Christian service, there's tons of magic in there. And there's magic all over daily practice. Uh, it's just they've reframed it and, and they don't, they're blind to the fact that they're doing it. They're, they don't recognize that that's what's going on. Well, I don't know if they're blind. I don't know if all of them are blind. I will say there's something else that you may not have noticed because it's beginning to change. But actually, the religious magic is almost all performed by males. And the folk magic is almost all performed by females or males who are not accepted into the hierarchy. Sure. So um, in Jewish folk magic, for instance, it really is, it's called domestic religion or domestic magic. It calls upon some of the same Jewish um, figures, you know, like Elijah and things like that. Mm-hmm. In And the work is done very, just a very Mediterranean, Middle Eastern type of folk magic, but it's almost never done by men unless they are outcast men. And so those outcast men might be people who are, you know, emotionally, mentally not acceptable or accepted, and in some cases gay. And so in... Um, African-American folk magic and hoodoo, there's a, a strong current of gay men because otherwise they might become Baptist preachers. Right. Because it's... Now, black culture does allow more women. There are more churches with women in them, but there are sometimes 
Uh, they're not the mainstream, like not African Methodist Episcopal or something like that. They're, you know, more small little Baptist breakoffs and, and, um, or holiness, Pentecostal breakoffs. But really, there's, there, it's not that people don't know that there's magic in religion, um, th- you know, theurgic, ma- you know, uh, religious magic, whatever you want to call it, um, but that priests are who are permitted to do it. And the women who do folk magic, and this is true of almost all folk magic, not just who do this would be true of Sicilian stregaria or, or mm. Mexican brujeria, curandismo, whatever, um, they also often perform other services for women, such as being midwives and in some cases abortionists. And so they there's an overlap between herb doctoring and you know root doctoring and the you know being a bone setter, more likely to be a man, a bone setter, but being a midwife and an abortionist, a lot of those women did also love magic. I don't. I don't know about that. Those the bone setting uh, traditions that I know are all Chinese because I because I live in Hong Kong. Um, I didn't realize there was a bone setter to that as well. Um, but yeah, to- totally, totally. So my sister, uh, my older sister, is an Episcopal priest. Um, oh. and so we talk about this so, stuff all the time. Yeah. Well, see, things have changed. Yeah. And among the among the Jews now, there is denominations of, of Judaism that have female rabbis. Sure. There there are. Protestant Christian churches, many of them, with um, with women as um, uh, pastors, deacons, and so forth. Because of that, the how can I put it? The avenue of advancement in uh, you know culturally and possibly economically in being a root worker is not as appealing. Because there's always a little um, social condemnation, like do you curse or not, you know, that kind of thing. Questions are asked. Do you perform abortions as well as being a midwife? You know, these kind of questions are asked. And so in the as this again has to do with segregation. Now we're not talking about racial segregation, but about gender segregation. And in a culture where the roles are gender segregated and women are made to take specifically lesser roles magic usually is one of those roles. Hmm. There also are a lot of male um, uh, magicians in hoodoo. There are a lot of men because the entire, the gender segregation was trumped by racial segregation. And so there's a lot of that. Um, And there also is a lot of, in um, Italian, you don't find as many um, men sorcerers in modern Italian you know, Sicilian American culture, as you would find women, the mm-hmm. grandmothers do it. Yeah, that makes sense. Even in uh, old, I, I there was a period of time uh, where I was looking into doing a travel television show about finding the origins of magic all around the world, which uh, you you would know a lot about. Uh, mm-hmm. And where we started was in Nordic culture, uh, which which was. Mostly, as far as anybody knows, women who who were the uh, reading the guts of the animals. Yeah, yeah. But there are always, I mean, there are men, but they tend to be outsider type men. Sure. And um, certainly there are, um, there are a lot of men who gain power and magic. I'm not saying in, in, in trolldom, you know, Swedish, Norwegian, Danish 
um, folk magic. There are a lot of men involved in it yeah. too, um, but it's but magic is has always been more gender um, neutral than say being in the priesthood or mm-hmm. uh, divinity school or whatever. That te- you know men tend to rule and dominate that, which leaves the women who are spiritually inclined less option, and so they would go more toward magic. There are cultures, by the way, in which magic and the priestcraft overlap, and they don't have that separation, which was really, in Europe, was really the doing of uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, in my opinion. He's the one who kind of framed it out in this way. But um, although their Jews had their own problems, and, you know, King Solomon telling the women, don't make those moon cakes, we don't like it, you know. Right. But, um, but, uh, but the, um, the uh, split... Um, between what men do and what women do is very extreme in Europe and especially in Christianity. So they tend to believe, Christians tend to believe that that's true all around the world, but it's not. And I know, for instance, I have um, uh, Taiwanese who are, you know, I guess these are probably, you know, ethnically some Southwestern Chinese who emigrated to Taiwan, uh, friends, but they now live in California, who, you know, send back to Taiwan to the um, Taoist priest for winning lottery numbers. Sure. And they get, you know, yeah, sure. Like you said, sure. Because in Taoism, that split isn't there. Yeah, Taoism is extremely uh, rich in magical practice. Yeah. Yeah. And there's an interesting mix there, too, because when you go around um, religious shops and spiritual places in Hong Kong, you find a lot more Buddhist than Taoist. It's sort of the the mm-hmm. the main religion seems to be more Buddhism and the Taoists are more secretive about I mean, you can I mean there's plenty of Taoist temples, but people who even go there might not really recognize that that's what that is. They just go to the temple to that god because they want to uh they want to pray for prosperity or or whatever it is that they're they're going for. Um, but people don't seem to focus as much on the history of what it is they are involved with, which always blows my mind. Yeah, I, I get that too. When I was in Japan, and I was really only there for a fairly short time, but we had a, a translator, um, and she she and I kind of hit it together, and we, we went out when we weren't working on the um, sustainable agriculture project. Um, she took me around to... Um, a lot of um, temples and places that were historical that that she knew. And we talked about this, and she said um, her family were, um, I, you know, said, oh, do you practice Shinto? And she looked at me, and she gave me this look. She goes, I do not believe the emperor is a god. I worship the kami. And I'm like, whoa, okay. I didn't even know there was that much of a difference. But in her mind, it was like I had almost insulted her because she venerated the kami, which are the nature gods, Mm-hmm. And every time we'd pass some little wayside shrine, she'd always pray and, you know, whatever. But she didn't like Shinto. But then we we started talking and I said, well, what about that we went to this Buddhist temple? She goes, the Buddhists are good for funerals. They get you a better next lifetime. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You can shop around. <laughs> so she, you can shop. So that's the only reason that she said they liked the, she liked the Buddhists because they could get you a, a good funeral. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I have a friend who's a feng shui master, and and her father's a feng shui master. And as far as I understand, most of what feng shui uh, comes from is 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 based in 
Taoist traditions. Yeah, it's but, Taoist. But yeah. they are Buddhist. And, right. and when I was like, oh, that's interesting, because uh, they had large, you know, Guanyin on the wall mm -hmm. and, and Buddha uh, images, and, and, and I was trying to understand the connection, and they, they just looked at me like I was crazy, like, well, of course we're Buddhist. Why wouldn't we be Buddhist? I was like, oh, okay. Well, do, <laughs> I don't know if you ever saw that book we published called North Asian Magic. No, I um, don't know that one. Oh, it's North. The book is North Asian Magic by David Borgi Shi, and mm. it's about Mongolian and Manchurian folk magic. Oh, that's some cool stuff. And um, he is half Manchurian and half Mongolian, and um, he, he still has family back there. And um, he went back there and took a trip. And he was there's a photo he took of his uncle's shrine, and it has a a Buddha. Um, and a Guanyin in it, right next to each other. Yeah. And um, and I it also has, and I don't remember the name he gave it, but it's the Earth Wealth God, you know, the guy who sits on a chair. Uh-huh. Um, and there's bananas and apples and sticks of joss and all this stuff, you know, it was like, okay, there it is. It's all in one. But, and he said, yeah, that's how it's done out there. And they also, besides, they they don't have, they have some Taoism, but they have their own native um Mongolian Manchurian religion, um, where they ha they worship um, a sky god and everything is blue and you know I mean it's all it, they got their own thing going on but they come off a across as Tibetan Buddhists or Vajrayana Buddhists but they're actually not not even a little bit it's I mean you know I shouldn't say that they don't look like it to me as sure. an outsider I go they look like a, a, a nomadic. Um, people, uh, you know, of the of these grasslands that have now <laughs> have have uh, Vajrayana Buddhism. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's I, I have found in Asian cultures, uh, well, Chinese in particular, that it is okay to worship multitudes of things or to have multiple. Yeah. I mean, you'll even find Ganesh mixed in. Uh, oh yeah. With with things, and it's funny. I was at a, 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 I guess, a Buddhist shop the other day, and I asked about the Ganesh and he looked at me confused and I pointed at it and he goes, oh, the elephant Buddha. <laughs> yeah, like, right, right. I was like, oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, that's, yeah well, that's, that's the same. When I was a kid in, um, in, in Berkeley, my school friend um, Joy, her parents had a Chinese grocery, which was a, you know, local, that's before all the supermarkets came in. So Chinese grocery meant they carried everything, but they also carried Chinese goods for the Chinese community. And they had like um, hell money on the counter right there, you know, and I'm like, oh my gosh, hell money, you know. And then, yep. you know, they sold juicicles. I mean, they sold everything American, but they also sold all of this stuff. And they had little Buddha statues. And, um, and I was you know, kind of confused as to what they, what exactly, what, what were they doing? What was it all about? I mean, is it going to be, because I read up about it. I was a kid. I was a smart kid. I'm like, okay, so here we've got this hell money, which is really spirit afterlife money. And, and, and we've got the Lord of the underworld here with that hat, with a little, you know, fringe and the pom-poms. Yep. And now we've got a Buddha. And so what, you know, I just, and I, and they said, oh, well, that's, that's Hote Buddha. That's Lucky Buddha. Yep. And, um, and I said, what? For, and they said, rub the Buddha's belly. I and mean, I was like, okay, I'll rub the Buddha's belly. But And I thought, are they just being accommodating to me? But no, that's actually what they did. That, that's what my grandmother and, taught me too. Rub, rub the Buddha's yeah. belly. And and then um, when, when I was very young, we lived in Fresno. 
California, which was a town with a lot of Armenians and a lot of Japanese people who had been um, agriculturalists and had been put in those internment camps. Mm-hmm. And um, we lived in a part of town where there was sort of like a, you know, again, sort of mixed, strange cultural oddity. And uh, my mother's best friend was a woman named uh, Yuri Kirgaku, and she was a Japanese. And I wish now that I knew then what I know now, but um, they were um, Amitabha Buddhists, and um, they had created a Buddhist temple, which I attended many times, but they called it a Buddhist church. They didn't want to use the word temple. Um, They wanted to fit in in Fresno, California, in the Central Valley, in this sort of fruit-growing area. They, they, a lot of them grew fruit. And, um, and I, I look back on that now, and I think, would they have done that today? And in fact, most of those churches have reverted to the use of the word temple. They didn't call them, they don't call themselves Buddhist churches anymore. And, um, and her father was the priest of this temple. And, um, it, it it was it was very interesting to know that that they were trying to make themselves seem and i've seen the same thing with hindus when i was young they would say oh we have a trimurti we have a, a trinity just like the christians you know and so they had this trinity which was consisted of you know um vishnu and brahma and shiva but they left off the Shakti, they left off the goddess because there was no place for that if they were going to map themselves against Christianity. And I, I remember back in the 70s talking to someone and said, well, what about Shakti? We're talking about Shakti. And they go, well, we just don't talk about Shakti. That's not, you know, but we have a Trimurti. We really do. But all of them have wives. And I'm like, okay, got it. <laughs> um, but they left out um, Shaktism as a major Hindu religion, as if it didn't exist. And and because they wanted to integrate or or conjugate with or become part of a Western concept of a trinity. Yeah. Uh, so. in, Christ, in Christianity, I, I quite like the traditions based around Mary just for that reason. It's keeping the goddess oh, alive. Yeah. Keeping the other side of things. Or the, the uh, high priestess card. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who I was always taught is the Queen of Sheba... Solomon's favorite wife. Oh, that's good. Um, it, because the show is called Mysterious World, uh, and and I think most of the world you live in is the mysterious world. Um, what uh, what comes to mind when I ask, what are some otherworldly experiences you've had where things went, oh, that's amazing i mean the the boy stepping back into mm. the the into mm-hmm. the uh magnetic sand is a good one uh to to solidly mm-hmm. show you that this stuff has substance um but i like to collect stories of the strange and bizarre and you know things that um go go beyond our ability to understand them um and to find them and and i think magic often does um, but within that that sphere, there are things that happen that even go beyond what's normal for that practice. I'm sure you've got lots of these kinds of moments in your life. Oh, yeah, I do. And I'm trying to think, you know, what should I tell you? Um, 
I've been known to, well, I know myself to dream true. And uh -huh. I've had many things come to me in dreams. These are regular sleeping dreams, which have come true. So many of them, I began keeping a dream journal of them. But I found very soon that I could not teach dreaming true to people. They either have it or not, and it may be genetic. In my course, when I teach people, the third homework is to tell briefly the story of their family's magical uh, participants. You know, did you have anyone in your family who could, you know, cut cards, dream true, did magic, whatever, and do you remember when you started doing this? And the best students are those who have family members, so I do believe it's genetic, and they also have um, started usually, if not at the age of the early self-consciousness around the age of six, they began practicing magic around puberty. Mm -hmm. Those who've cast their first spell in their 40s never amount to much as magicians, in my opinion. They haven't practiced long enough. It's like a kid who can hit a baseball. You know that by the time they're in second grade, either they can or they can't. Yeah, it's funny. I remember at some point going, oh, wait, not all kids make potions? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> huh. Exactly. So I, I've, I could tell uh, several stories about magical spells that came true to the point that I became convinced by the time that I was uh, 14 that I understood that magic existed and that I could manipulate it. But I, I could tell you other stories that came from my dream. And I'll, I'll try to be brief. It's a long story, if you don't mind. But no, please. it's probably the most mysterious thing that ever happened to me. Oh, that's the so, best one. <laughs> yeah, so um, this was in the 60s. And I was doing astrology on the street and doing card readings on the street, selling the Berkeley Barb underground newspaper and um, writing co-writing with a bunch of people um, an astrology column for the San Francisco uh, Express, a.k.a. the Good Times Express, which was another underground paper. Hmm. And um, I was just sort of living hand to mouth, pretty much. And I had just gotten out of jail um, from growing marijuana. And so hmm. I was kind of trying to figure out what to do next. And, but I was making a, you know, a, a pretty good street le level <laughs> living, just doing astrology and stuff. And, and I had a place to live. I, I lived in a, um, a shared rental with a bunch of other people. And I, I had a dream that um, I was down on by the headlands, uh, which are some cliffs down in Mendocino, up in Mendocino County, by the town of Mendocino, near where that little, uh, that little Chinese temple I mentioned was. And um, I dreamt that I went down by the cliffs and there was a cave in the cliff. And um, I went in there. Now, I had been in Sicily and there were these caves and, you know, grottos. So it was like as if that was in Sicily, it, it, you know, um, geological formation-wise. It was not like Mendocino. And so I went into this cave and, um, and Paul McCartney was there. And this was during the height of the interest in the Beatles. Um, wow. This was um, around the time uh, Sgt. Pepper's had come out, but the White Album had not come out. And um, there was Paul McCartney. And I was not a Beatles fan. I was a little too old to have been a screaming Beatles fan girl. But I liked them because they did some Chuck Berry songs, and I liked Chuck Berry a lot. And um, I also didn't like them because they did Chuck Berry songs and, you know, fuck, why don't you write your own songs, guys? You know, which they eventually did. But I was never like, a, oh, my God, you know, wow, the Beatles. So, but there was Paul McCartney. And I said, um, I said, hi. And he said, um, you're looking for John Lennon, aren't you? 
And I said, I am. <laughs> he said, yes. And I woke up. Then I went to, <laughs> two nights later, I dreamt I was at a gas I was at a gas station, and at the gas station was a girl I'd gone to school with. Her name was Cindy Sargent, and she handed me a map, and it was a blank map, and it had rule lines around the outside edge, and, you know, N-S-E-W, you know, showing that it was a map, but it was completely blank. And she goes, here's your map so you can find John Lennon. next time. There will be another episode where the story that Catherine started will continue and you will learn whether or not she followed that map and whether or not she found John Lennon. It's a great story. I really look forward to being able to present it for you. Uh, I'm honored to have had Catherine for almost four hours. Our conversation went on. Um, so I, I could make this probably into two more episodes. I'm not sure exactly. Um, but this was the right place to stop the first one as we got her story of how, as a child, she discovered hoodoo and how through her experience in the beginning of her college years, uh, she discovered that she shouldn't go to college and instead would follow recording magical history. She's done a lot of interesting and cool and wonderful things. Uh, and uh, I'm blessed to, to be able to know her, even if it is so far only through the internet. If you'd like to find out more about Catherine Ironwood, you can do so on uh, the Lucky Mojo Curio Company. This is her company, the company that she started that she tells the story about on, on here. And this is where I discovered her work, not knowing that actually we'd had a correspondence uh, before on another issue involving pendulums, which I'm a big fan of. As you all know, I wrote a book on pendulum magic called Beginner Pendulum Magic. And um, for me, Catherine Ironwood, Cat Ironwood is an inspiration. She is um, a person that I see as a role model in some sorts uh, because I do, I do like to write and I do like to study the history of these things and I do like to um, share that and explore it deeply, find the new and um, amazing connections between things. It's a, it's a wonderful process of learning the history of, of magic and learning the origins uh, and uses of it around the world. Um, so, so that's exciting. I'm excited to, to take her, heed uh, some of the advice she's given me. Um, Catherine has written many, many books that you can find at the Lucky Mojo Curio Company. This is the company that she speaks of in the story. It's the company that she started um, that gives uh, spells, that teaches, that um, provides spiritual supplies for readers and hoodoo root workers and workers of many magical practices of all sorts internationally. Uh, if you want to learn more about it, go to luckymojocuriocompany.com uh, or just circle, a uh, circle, just search Lucky Mojo on 
whatever search Google thing you use. And you'll find all the information about her in the next episode. Um, she lists out everything she's done uh, in all the places you can go. So we'll have that for you as well. I'm going to put that in the descriptions also. So you'll see links to those places, including a, a site for uh, tea leaf reading and uh, a site for the histories of many different types of magical practice. I don't know how many sites she's got. She's got a lot of web pages. Um, I hope you all are staying creative. I hope you're keeping your minds focused on creative and, and uh, inspiring practice. You're letting yourself take this calm world we are living in and be calm to focus on healing, to focus on becoming a better you. Because that's what we're here for. I know that in the media, there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear. And I say, let go of that fear. Allow yourself to find the strength, to find the inspiration, and to find the pleasure in the isolation that we are all, to some degree or another, experiencing now. Allow yourself to birth a new you at the end of this situation. Once the virus is gone and we're all going outside, we're traveling again, we'll be able to see it anew, to take on these practices that we've taken for granted in a different manner, and hopefully giving more respect to our globe, to our ecology, to Mother Nature. Being able to connect more deeply with each other and to connect with the earth itself. I think it's going to be a positive thing for humanity. Right now, people are stressed. They're worried. They're reacting to fear. And those who are trying to use that fear to gain something. And that's a dangerous way to be. You don't have to hold on to it. You don't need the fear. Just be safe. Wash your hands. Wear a mask. Follow the social protocol wherever you live to stay well. And don't spend time with media learn learning to fear, learning to fall into that trap. Instead, allow yourself to grow. And we will all grow for the better. So I wish you all well. If you are able and would like to show your support for the Mysterious World Podcast, you can go to mysteriousworldpodcast.com or stuartpalm.com and then click the uh, tab for podcast. And when you get there, you'll find a button for Patreon where you can have a um, weekly pledge payment and uh, sh support this show. It would really, really help. And uh, if you're not able to do that, if you go to the Apple Podcast app and please find Mysterious World and give it five stars. It's a very small act. 
that would give a lot of support to this podcast. I'm trying right now to build it up stronger and um, be able to do this more regularly because I do enjoy it and uh, I find that there's a lot of value in it. So go to the website, click the Patreon button if you can do it. And uh, I'm going to be adding uh, extra content and things for people who do that. And um, so you get even more special exclusive stuff. I send my love to you and my thanks. Blessed be. cracking it hears me quacking fuck this land and two if by me 
Send your ways to me. Send your call to me. Send your days to me. Send it all to me. And when I'm high and square, when I would have you there, you will be. As I send my love to you, written by Will Oldham. Be well. <laughs>